In today's episode, join us in dialogue with the remarkable Dr. Rick Hansen, founder of the new field of Neurodharma, which integrates contemplative practices, psychology, and neuroscience. In part one, we explore what we can do to combine ancient wisdom and contemporary psychology to train our minds, to reduce painful mind states like fear, shame, and craving, and to enhance our happiness and well-being, and to contribute more effectively to a troubled world. Join us for a conversation about these topics and more. Welcome to Deep Transformation, Self, Society, Spirit, life-enhancing, paradigm-rattling conversations with cutting-edge thinkers, contemplatives, and activists with Dr. Roger Walsh and John Dupuy. Join us in the evolutionary fast lane as we take a deep dive into transformational practice peak experience, profound understanding, powerful contribution. Welcome back to the Deep Transformation Podcast. And my name is John Dupuy, and this is Dr. Roger Walsh. And with us, we have Rick Hansen, or Dr. Rick Hansen, as our guest for this podcast. And let me just say a little bit, I'm very excited to be talking to you. One of the hats I wear, I'm the CEO of, of iWake Technologies, which is Technodharma. And so I'm just hanging on anything you can share about that. And also before that, I worked with alcoholics and addicts for about 20 years. And we were having the conversation before we started, everything you were talking about, how do you get these virtues? How do you get these things to stick over time? It's a big, big issue for me and one I've been struggling with myself recently. So but one of the things when I was going over, I was watching some of your podcasts and TED Talks, et cetera, preparing for this, and I was deeply moved. In fact, I'm tearing up just talking about it because you have such a kindness oh. and such a humility and clarity as well as intelligence. And I was going, this is, this is the medicine we need to heal our world and heal our country right now. So. Without further ado, I just want to say thank you, and I'm deeply grateful that you're here with us. Well, John, I feel very touched by that, really touched by that. And it's ironic, isn't it, that as soon as we compliment someone on being humble, ego (laughs) tends to arise unless they're entirely ineradicably awakened already, which is not how I describe my own body-mind process yet. And in any case, I feel very touched, honestly. I appreciate that. And there's something profound, isn't there, when something in us recognizes that in others. And in recognizing that in others, we recognize it in ourselves. And we, and then we feel recognized, which for me as someone who has a developmental psychology background with very young children, the profound importance of feeling that which is good and that which is original in our nature even is recognized in us. And the lack of that recognition and mirroring can be a terrible, terrible deficit in growing up, which then can become further reinforced in adulthood. And so offering that recognition to others sincerely is such a beautiful gift. So I I thank you for it. And I'd like to add a little recognition too, (laughs) dear Rick, particularly now for the benefit of our listeners, because while you and I have known each other for quite a few years and developed a wonderful friendship, uh, I also have enormous appreciation for the many contributions you've made. And Rick is a 
Well, I'll do it second person, Rick. You're a very prolific author. I've I've lost count of the number of books you've, you've written, but I know the titles of some of them, Buddha's Brain, Mother Nurture, Hardwiring Happiness, I think was another. I think the most recent is Neurodharma. They have sold very well. I think you've got over a million copies out now and just in English alone, and I think 26 other languages. So that's an extraordinarily successful publishing career. But I'm also touched by the fact that in addition to being a prolific author, you have your own private practice, you consult, and very beautifully, you've founded a couple of organizations to bring what you've learned and the skills you've developed and the gifts you have to offer to the world through both your own personal organization and philanthropic organizations. And you have created the Wellspring Institute for Neuroscience and Contemplative Wisdom. You've been on the board of the Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Your life has been a significant part about contribution through many domains and dimensions and avenues. And it's really beautiful all you've done. There's so much we can get into, and I hope we will, but by way of context, one of the things you've devoted your life to is creating a new field, a field you've called neurodharma, which is the intersection of contemplative wisdom, particularly Buddhist, but not exclusively, plus integrating that with contemporary science both psychology and neuroscience. And out of those, you've forged this discipline of neurodharma. That's been in large part your life's work. And let's start big. Let's just ask, what are the most some of the most important takeaways that you've learned from your many years of research and writing and thinking and talking about mm. this topic? Well, thank you as well, Roger, for that very gracious introduction. And somehow I'm reminded of an insight that came to me once when I was traveling a lot and tired and irritated and beleaguered and all the rest of that. And I just had this image, perhaps from Joseph Goldstein, that living is like a rope moving through our hands or we move down the rope. And where suffering begins is when we squeeze and create friction. And so one thing that's kind of enabled me perhaps to some extent to survive the, the work I've done, and I suspect you know this feeling well, is to drop into those moments when we abide in more of a frictionless contentment. Yes, there is stress. Yes, there is worry. Yes, the plane is late and we're stuck at the airport for two hours. And in our core, there can be an unshakable ground of well-being that we remain in touch with, resilient well-being in our core, even as we try to resist little. Resistance is futile, as they would say maybe in Star Trek. So it's something about that, something about the feeling of frictionless contentment as a way of moving through life has been actually important for me, including the, the, the embodied sense of it. So that said, maybe that's a segue because what creates so much of our suffering is grounded in the body. There certainly are factors outside of us in the world that deserve our effort, and maybe we'll talk somewhat about that. But to really appreciate the ways in which, as Evan Thompson puts it, mind in life. Mind is grounded in life. Other than what might be supernatural or transcendental, our moments of experience, the streaming of consciousness, is embedded in and constrained by and constructed by physical processes in the body. And with our modern understanding, we can ground the deep causes 
of suffering and the deep causes of unshakable happiness and liberation in the living body, not as a replacement for traditional teachings and traditional teachers who did not need an MRI to become enlightened or to help many others along the way. And still, we've learned a few things in the last 2,500 years and definitely in the last 25 years. Why not use those? Why not play with all the toys? Why not use all the tools, right? So that's been extremely interesting for me to explore the frontier of what's plausibly knowable or pragmatically useful and particularly relatively low risk that can be gathered from the deepening understanding of the ways in which the body is making the mind. By mind, I simply mean in the ordinary sense of our own personal experiences, moment after moment after moment. So that has really animated me as an incredible field of opportunity. So that, I would say, is one thing. And a second thing that's been a real takeaway, and then I'll kind of shut up about it, is the realization that, based on that understanding, we can use our, our mind. We can use where we place our attention simply, which is under volitional control, even if we have to exercise that control again and again, if our attention is like the proverbial little puppy wandering off all over the place, come back puppy, come back puppy, again and again. So where we locate attention and then how we relate to what we're attending to. In so doing, we can use mental activities to engage, stimulate, lengthen, extend the duration of, sustain neurological activities, which then foster lasting changes in the brain and the nervous system and the body. In other words, we can use our mind to direct mental activity in ways that plausibly produce maximal beneficial neurological change, which then in turn fosters beneficial mental changes. We can, in effect, use our minds to change our brains, to change our minds for the better, for the sake of others and also ourselves. And we have that, we have that power. We have that power. And in our secular age or modern age, to appreciate the underlying factual, objective neurobiology of the application of that power really grounds it and cuts through a lot of resistance to mental practices, psychological, spiritual practices as hooey, new agey, airy-fairy, or some kind of upper-class indulgence. You really get how deeply grounded this approach is in the essence of self-reliance. Right? And so to realize we have that power, no one can defeat us in using that power in the innermost sanctuary of our being. And we cannot escape responsibility for using it or not using it in the innermost sanctuary of our being. So those are two big takeaways, I would say, from my passion in this area. Mm. What I get from what you're saying, a couple of things. One is the one of the useful functions of bringing neuroscience and contemporary research to bear on contemplative practices is legitimation. That for better and for worse, science has, at least in a significant part of the, our culture, not all of it, unfortunately, we see the tragedy of that with uh, anti-scientific responses to vaccination, etc. But in a significant percentage of the population, science is the arbiter of reality. And if you can't measure it through the scientific instrument, then for a lot of people, it doesn't really exist, or it's airy-fairy or woo-woo. So you're pointing to the fact that the neuroscientific research on contemplative practices really can serve a powerful legitimating function. 
So that's one of the points you made very beautifully. And the other, as I understood it, was, okay, we can use our mental skills, particular attention, cultivating particular qualities to change the brain, and that those brain changes then enable us to uh, maintain, for example, transform states into traits. But let me be challenged here. People have known that these practices can elicit valuable experiences, that meditation can produce capacities for love and kindness, compassion, insight, and wisdom, and that if practiced long enough, they develop into significant traits, valuable ways of character and being. I could see someone saying, well, so why do we need the neuroscience? People have known that for 2,500 years. Oh, it's a fundamental question. And I think I would say, first, we do not need neuroscience. It's crystal clear in the spiritual traditions, the contemplative traditions. And it's also extremely clear in the domain of clinical psychology and related practices that mental efforts can produce mental changes. I'm using the word mental in the broadest sense, not just about intellect. Tremendous evidence there. I mean, the evidence for the results of sustained psychological practice of one kind or another, and I, I think there are different kinds of practices and so forth, is tremendous, period, full stop. Now, that said, I think there are at least three benefits that are available to us, maybe more, by resting, by grounding our considerations of the mind in life. One benefit is that it is motivating, as you just said. And that is a very real benefit. That's a non-trivial benefit since for so many people, the issue really is like a motivation, sustained motivation, uh, particularly people in the great bulk of the population who have some, maybe a passing sense of things like mindfulness or compassion practice, things like that. And they kind of think, well, that'd be a good idea. It's a little bit like exercise. Yeah, I really ought to exercise, <laughs> says a third of American adults who are morbidly obese, technically. So motivation is really, really fundamental, non-trivial. Second, when you explore, consider the vast warehouse of psychospiritual ideas, and methods from around the world's traditions, described in ways that are culturally situated often, sometimes exotic and arcane, hard to get at. Sometimes people become dogmatic and controversial and argumentative about it all. When you look at all that through the lens of, huh, how would you operationalize that in the body? What's cooking in the, your hormones, your nervous system, your immune system, particularly in your brain, when you're doing Tonglen or when you're doing Centering Prayer, Father Keating in, in a Christian framework, or when you're doing jhana practice in the Buddhist tradition, what the heck's going on inside your brain? When you start asking that sort of question, it gives you a common framework for recognizing that often people are using different words to talk about the same thing, or you're, they're using the same words to talk about something very different. It gives us a common framework of inquiry. That can be very, very helpful, I think. Third, maybe the major benefit, once you get past the motivational benefit, is that understanding more of what's happening in the body as we grapple with forms of suffering, afflictions, hindrances, and neuroses, and so forth, and also what's happening in the body as we release them and gradually stabilize in more beneficial, resilient, resilient, 
happier, more loving, wiser ways of being. What that does is it highlights, it brings a spotlight to the 10,000 tools around all the world. And it highlights the ones that for this person at this time probably would have the highest priority for engaging or the top 10 for this person right now. With deep respect for whatever tradition they're engaged in, people don't have to swap traditions, but you can really zero in on certain things that really matter a lot. Now, when you find them, you realize you have not invented them just because you know something about the brain. Suddenly you realize, oh yeah, that's what my therapist used to do. <laughs> right? That's what my guru used to do. Well, that's what Roger Walsh used to talk about. What, right? But recognizing what's the priority is incredibly valuable. And so for me, I'll, I'll give you like two or three just quick examples that are super useful. One is appreciation, the brain's evolved negativity bias. The degree to which it's highly prone to overlearn from, I'll call them negative experiences that are painful or harmful or both, and underlearn from beneficial experiences that are enjoyable or pragmatically useful or both. And when you realize that your brain is like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones, as I say, suddenly that orients you in a new way in your practice. You start to appreciate with a certain humility that it's not just enough to witness the streaming of consciousness. We need to actively work with the mind to pull weeds and plant flowers there in physical systems that are very fertile for weeds and tend to hold on to their roots and they're like stony ground for most of the positive qualities the flowers we want to cultivate bingo that's super useful it focuses yeah. your practice yeah another one is to realize that for example if you're going to steady your mind it's really useful to engage certain preliminary factors that help stabilize attention. Otherwise, the instruction to just, you know, be present, be here now is great for one or two breaths in a row, but afterwards, <laughs> forget about it. So little things like realizing that tuning into the internal sensations of your body engages the inter engages interoception, as you know, and the insula. And the insula functions when it activates as a kind of circuit breaker that pulls us out of default mode network activation. So instead of being lost in thought, obsessing, ruminating, lost in the past or the future, as we tend to live our days, you know, certainly the average person spends about 50% of their time in the simulator, in the ruminator, lost in thought, studies show. When, as soon as you tune into the internal sense of the breath coming in and flowing out, it brings you right into your body, decreases nonverbal activity, and tends to, as I said, deactivate default mode network activity. Like knowing that. Now, many teachers teach that kind of stuff. But when you know that and you understand the machinery of it, suddenly you're much more focused on doing that kind of a thing. Or last, recognizing the ways in which the sense of things as a whole, which is contra most of our culture, and most of our work activities, which tend to be analytic and parts struggling with parts or sequential, but to move into things as a whole, the sense of the body as a whole, or the visual field as a whole, or the total gestalt of our situation. When you learn and understand that that engages really ancient primary circuits in the brain in terms of the larger field, which 
is how our ancestors evolved. They had to take in the whole field first, you know, back in Jurassic Park days. When you know that that's true, when you know that when you lift your gaze to the horizon, when you know that you get a sense of the bigger picture, such as the feeling of breathing in your chest as a whole or your body as a whole, what that does neurologically is several really good things. It quiets activity in midline circuits where much of our suffering in effect is centered in terms of neural factors, very strong sense of self and midline cortical activation, the front regions of which are task-oriented, the rearward portions, as you know, Roger, are more default mode-oriented, just kind of spacing out and daydreaming or, or worrying all the above. While on the other hand, when we quiet them through a sense of the whole, we tend to engage the right hemisphere for most people, right-handed people in particular, quiets verbal activity, which is centered in the left hemisphere, as you know, and also pulls us into the present, since mental time travel is so situated in this midline cortical development, which has been a major evolutionary advance in the last several million years. So just getting a sense of the whole, looking out the window, raising your gaze to the horizon, feeling the, sensing the volume of the room as the whole, or being aware of your body as a whole, is neurological magic. Now, lots of teachers teach these kind of methods, but they're amidst 10,000 other tools. But when you can really highlight the power of that kind of technique, if you will, and then increasing it as a trait, and when you situate the recognition of the power of that technique in a critique of modern life, which is so midline activating, so caught up in divisions of various kinds, parts struggling with parts rather than a sense of things as a whole, then you're much more likely to use it. So those are three examples, for instance. And then once in a while, fourth benefit, a neurobiological context, really, life as the context, is occasionally you identify new methods. I think neurofeedback is a new method that's emerging. I think it has a lot of promise. It's the Wild West there. It's developing. Once in a while, you stumble on a cool little hack by learning about the circuitry of the brain that in all your journeys, at least for me, pretty aware of the psycho-spiritual warehouse. I've never heard of it before. Maybe it's buried there in some deep Tibetan cave or some Jewish mysticism that I'm not knowledgeable about. But on the whole, once in a while, you can actually come up with something new. Okay, so those are for me four reasons. Motivation, common framework, highlighting what's really a priority for an individual and individualizing practice. And then fourth, occasionally new methods that are benefits of a neurological frame. And can you give us an example of a new hack from, from you found from your neuroscientific investigations? They're really hard to come by because, of course, we don't need brain science. We don't need it. It doesn't replace the tradition. Other than neurofeedback, no. And I'm not pharmacologically knowledgeable, so I suspect that there's some developments there that are not found in traditional psychedelics or plant medicines, entheogens, and so forth. But it's really hard to find something that hasn't been named or identified elsewhere. But I think, I guess, of the T.S. Eliot line that at the end of all of our journeys, right, we find ourselves where we began, but we know the place deeply for the first time. Yeah, and you're bringing another dimension and depth to this, and perhaps, as you said, just helping us to rec recognize commonalities and also providing some legitimation and motivation for us. And, and I, I would add a not quite a, a, another benefit, but expanding in part on what you said, and that is 
I was talking with a friend last night who very much appreciated your book, Buddha's Brain. She said the most important thing she got from this, and this was a new insight for me, I hadn't thought of this, was reading about how hardwired we are, as you said, for negative experiences. And that how hard it is to, for our voluntary awareness, etc., to regulate autonomic functions or, yeah. uh, is was for her very useful to realize. And she said, both to reduce her own sense of, of something was wrong with her, that she couldn't mm. do that, and to extend compassion to yeah. others, realizing we're all working with these problems and we're all hardwired. Uh, the reptile lives within us. And yep. It's hard to control. <laughs> I know. We're all scared monkeys. Yeah. And that yeah. I had not appreciated that that could lead to both a reduction in guilt oh, yeah. and a sense of compassion for all of us. That, that That's right. a very beautiful benefit. If I could just use that as an example, you already know about compassion for people and you already know about releasing guilt. But there's something about getting it in terms of our biology, our in our evolution, that somehow helps it really crystallize and land. So it wasn't that it was a new idea, but something about it, something about looking at it through this framework, really helped it kachunk sink in. And it was very helpful for me. So it gave me a, another dimension of appreciation for what you're doing that I you know, just hadn't hadn't occurred to me before. Yeah. Rick, you mentioned the challenge of working with some of these experiences and particularly of stabilizing them. And I know that one of your main interests and concerns has been the real challenge of transforming, well, they've called by various names. It's, and maybe I'll back up and just say any of us have done some contemplative practices or, or some psychotherapy. We know that it's not that hard to induce powerful, beneficial experiences. But experiences fade, and the real challenge is to transform experiences and transform altered states into enduring traits or peak experiences into plateau experiences or epiphanies into personality. Or Houston Smith, the religious scholar, said it most beautifully. He said that the challenge is to transform flashes of illumination into abiding light. Mm. And I know that this has been a real interest of you and your work. I'd love to hear you speak to that. Oh, boy. First, I guess quite centered for me and related to what you said there a moment ago about recognizing really the ways in which as we walk past people on the street who are dressed for success and maybe we're just living their day, that basically we're a bunch of freaked out monkeys living with each other doing the best we can. And in that is this feeling of, wow, we need all the help we can get, including the power of these increasingly available ideas and tools uh, by just simply appreciating our embodied consciousness rather than just merely thinking of that as an experience or a kind of shibboleth we point to as like, 
you know, needle pointer on the wall, oh, embodiment, to actually appreciate, no, actually, it's your body that's making your experiences moment to moment. And what are the implications of that? This body that's been given to us as the product of three and a half billion years of evolution of life and 600 million years of evolution of a nervous system. And to appreciate that helps us with our predicament. <laughs> And we need all the help we can get. So in that context then, you're exactly right. How to move from states to traits, how to help those flashes become stable illumination. And I would actually say that uh, appreciating the embodied basis of our suffering and our liberation has indeed led me to two things that might kind of sort of be in that fourth category, perhaps of genuinely fresh emphases or insights. The first of them is to appreciate that craving, to use the Buddhist drive theory of suffering, craving broadly is a drive state that rests biologically in an invasive sense of deficit or disturbance in terms of a need. So that, if you understand craving in that way, if we really situate craving and freedom from craving in an evolutionary biological framework, then you start to realize, oh, what helps us not experience those deficits of or disturbances in core needs? Certainly we should address the world around us. Poverty is a major you know, factor in, in craving. Hello, duh. But internally, it really helps people to, number one, grow psychological resources and strengths so they can manage challenges to needs without tipping into craving about it, without tipping into freezing or fighting or fleeing, let's say, about it, to be able to manage their needs with some equanimity in their core of their being. They need to grow psychological strengths that are enduring, strengths like grit, gratitude, compassion, self-worth, emotional intelligence, interpersonal skills, secure attachment, and so forth and so forth. Growing strengths helps us manage the inevitable challenges and waves of life without getting pushed into what I call the red zone. Second, by repeatedly internalizing the felt sense authentically of needs met enough in the moment, that really sweet, intimate feeling of, ah, oh, I'm basically all right in the present. I'm safe enough in the present. Yes, I can be aware of challenges, but in the present there can be a calm. To feel a, of, of an enoughness of satisfaction, that other second major need. So there's a like gratitude or contentment. I'm still trying to achieve, but there's a lot already. I really am glad already. And then last, our need for connection broadly. There's lovingness flowing in and lovingness flowing out, or there's a felt sense of open-heartedness in the present. There's an enoughness of that. When we have those genuine experiences, and we're not making it up, they're real, slow down to help them land to build up the trait of enoughness in the, a trait increasingly sense, trait-based sense of fundamental peacefulness, contentment, and love as the felt sense of needs met enough in the moment, hardwired into the core of our being. So for me, that way of thinking about how to address craving as a major approach to craving, not the only approach to craving. There's a place for insight, and there's especially a place for love, which combines both insight, deep liberating insight, and the meeting of our needs. But this practice of growing psychological strengths to meet needs without getting pushed into the red zone and internalizing the sense of needs met enough as a way to address craving, I don't really find that in the certainly the Buddhist tradition. 
that is deeply considered about this issue of craving. And then related to that second, to really appreciate the ways in which we are active. We are active players in the movement from state to trade. We tend to think of people that we're teaching or coaching or therapizing as kind of passive recipients of wisdom or kind of passive sponges that maybe absorb or not incidentally, rather than regarding them and ourselves as active facilitators of helping our experiences at the time leave the maximal positive neural traces behind in terms of lasting physical changes of structure and function. So that there too, to realize, wow, for example, as I extend the duration of my beneficial experiences of illumination or a simple calming or a peacefulness or a felt sense of ground of all or the feeling of, of open-heartedness or lovingness, as I extend the duration of that experience, half a breath, a full breath, several breaths in a row, I'm sustaining neural activity that's going to be a factor of neuroplasticity. You know, the longer the neurons are firing together, the more they're going to tend to be wiring together. I can be an active agent in that, not out of clinging or thingifying of the experience, but out of deliberately trying to foster the maximal learning in the broadest sense from that experience. Other things like focusing on the sense of what's rewarding about that experience facilitates and increases dopamine and norepinephrine activity and in so doing is going to tend to heighten the neurological trace of that. We can do that ourselves, not by making anything up, but by highlighting what is enjoyable or meaningful about a beneficial experience. That's going to foster neuroplastic change. And there are a variety of other internal methods we can use that I've identified in various places. And I've we finally got a paper accepted for publication about this. It'll probably come out in about a year in Journal of Positive Psychology that really builds this out. These are factors that are neurologically plausible that we can engage ourselves. But I have to say, I've, I've never seen them taught systematically. And I've never seen people encouraged systematically to use them, including at the beginning of a retreat or a therapy session or an MBSR program or anything like that. So that, that might be kind of a semi-original contribution too, which then maybe is a long way of answering your question that this movement from state to trade, I think, is incredibly important because as you say it's you know or imply it's disheartening to have an insight in therapy but by the time we get in our car it's faded like you know a wispy cloud under a hot sun or we're have an insight in in meditation and it seems so real so wonderful and then 20 minutes later we're arguing with our partner about something stupid yet again you know and to be able to realize you can really help yourself heal a little, grow a little, awaken a little every day in ways that are lasting. That's so hopeful, you know, it, rather than despairing, like we're stuck. Maybe I'll finish with Milarepa, who said, you know, looking back on his life, in the beginning, nothing came. In the middle, nothing stayed. In the end, nothing left. And that mm. transition from the middle to the end, exactly right. Whether it's over our lifespan or with regard for a particular thing we're trying to help to establish in our consciousness as a trait, to me is, is really the essence of practice. Could you guide us in perhaps a practical way to anchor? For example, I'm, I'm in a very yeah, open yeah. space right now. I'm really being, my soul is being fed and my heart is open. And this is really beautiful. So how would we actually do that in the moment 
to Ank and I, I, I will assume that many people listening to this conversation are also having this experience. So how do we take this as a practical means to anchor this in order to make it more lasting? And oh, I so appreciate that invitation, John, and I'll do it with you because I'm, I'm in it too, right? So, okay, so here we are, we're having an experience and we're noticing, let's say, some beneficial experience that's already occurring. That's usually where we begin. If we want, we might foster or encourage an experience. Maybe there's a feeling in us of, oh, I'm, I'm called to a kind of open-hearted confidence, like an open-hearted calm, a peaceful lovingness, a, a warm-hearted peacefulness, maybe, some, some experience. Okay, so now we're having an experience. And now to help that state become more of a trait, to help it start to sink in, it can help to stay with it. It's a micro concentration practice, in effect. It's a micro samadhi practice. So just stay with it. And second, as you stay with it, open to it more and more in your body. There could be sensations that underlie a thought, a perspective. feelings, there could be a sense of the experience spreading in your body almost, sinking in, a warmth maybe. An opening. Perhaps something soothing. There might be a sense of a kind of homecoming into this experience. And third, in this brief practice, be aware of some of what is rewarding for you about this, what feels good or is important to you about this experience. What's pleasurable about it? Or meaningful? And last, there could be a sense of receiving this experience into yourself, this way of being. Allowing it to be established in you. As you give over to it. Receiving this way of being. landing in it fully, as it lands in you.
So we could continue with that, but I'll maybe <laughs> leave it there. And every single thing I said has a neurological correlate that was deliberate on my part as a factor of lasting embodied learning. And I think you just gave us an answer to the question I raised before, which was, what are some hacks that you have discovered? And I think you just gave us one. I've been searching my mind thinking, well, yes, have I run across anything in my many years of exploration of the world's contemplative traditions where there's really an emphasis on simply resting in positive experiences? And yes, but not quite from the angle of providing a substrate of well-being that will buffer us against the turbulence of life and particularly the, the sense of deficiency and lack that drives so much of yes. our compulsive behavior and particularly cravings. So I think that's a, that is a real contribution. I think of a couple of you know, some places where certainly there are these kinds of practices resting in love and the bhakti traditions in the some of the awareness in the, some of the concentration practices resting in some of the samadhis those stable states of consciousness or the buddhist jhanas or or the other states maybe tm emphasizes the well-being uh, that comes with stabilized transcendental consciousness and some of the buddhist awareness practices simply resting in awareness and finding that in those states, one doesn't want, there is a sense of wholeness, sufficiency, well-being. But I think you've had a different perspective on these and a different reason to rest in them. And I found it very therapeutic for myself because it made me realize that the attitude I bring towards meditation is, by a strange coincidence, the attitude I bring towards life, which is let's get through this as fast as possible, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> so I can get to the next <laughs> thing. And I don't allow myself to rest in beautiful states where they arise. There's more a kind of, I bring an attitude of problem solving towards contemplative practice as I do with life. So I think you've given us a beautiful example of, of a hack that comes from your uh, immersion in neuroscience, plus, of course, your deep immersion in contemplative practice. And it's that combination which allows you to make the unique contributions you do. I appreciate that. Do you mind if I make a distinction here? Please. Okay. So first, the resting, we're designed to crave. We evolved to crave and suffer as a very effective functional strategy in harsh conditions that our ancestors dealt with. The human species has been around anatomically modern around 300,000 years. That's a tiny fraction of the 600 million year evolution of the nervous system, the residues of which are alive within us as we walk around as living museums and zoos. So the value of resting contra Mother Nature in the felt sense of nothing missing, nothing wrong, which would kill most of our ancestors <laughs> to have marinated in back in the Serengeti Plains, let alone Jurassic Park. That is, for me, a really useful and fairly novel method that's directly targeting the neurobiological roots of craving. 
the roots of craving. You know, if craving is a cause of suffering, what's a cause of craving? Well, it's a sense of deficit or disturbance, as we said. So that's that's a particular reason to rest in the felt sense of needs not enough in the in the moment. The second distinction I'd like to draw is one that honestly, Roger, I bump into a lot, which is that we can find around the world an emphasis on sort of marinating in wholesome states of mind, beneficial, rest in the insight, rest in the recognition of impermanence, rest in the understanding that it's not your fault that your partner's a drunk, rest in the feeling that you can be open-hearted and compassionate toward others that you oppose intensely in terms of your politics. Rest in those things. Great. That's old news. That's common wisdom. To deliberately deploy a variety of methods inside your mind in terms of how you engage your experiences, not just to sustain them and rest in them, but also, for example, to highlight what might be novel about them or to highlight what's rewarding about them or to deliberately recognize what is relevant or personally salient about them in a very deliberate way to deliberately focus on different aspects of a key experience, not just the sensations in the body, but maybe related desires or intentions or movements that would enact it in an embodied way. To deliberately do those things because you're trying to steepen your growth curve. You're trying to increase your gain, your return on investment from those particular experiences. That is a fairly novel and I think fresh kind of distinction. And I want to really highlight it because it's very often that I'll find that people will just glide past that focus on the internal agency of the individual and then teaching the individual very plausible, effective methods for heightening their gain from their experiences. I think that's an important thing. The last distinction, if you'll forgive me, is to really be clear that many of the beneficial traits we, we want to grow in ourselves involve states that are not always so enjoyable. They're not so luscious. They're not so sweet. Healthy remorse, really getting it that, man, don't yell at your kids. Hello. You know, I had to learn that one a while ago. And commitment to sobriety. Speaking of your deep interest, John. Yeah. And a chagrin as you, you know, bottom out or wake up in the morning and look your face in the mirror. And I, I can relate to these things personally. That doesn't always feel so good. Also, a lot of what we're trying to help ourselves learn in the broadest sense are skills. They are not themselves a luscious experience. We're trying to acquire different skills with our own minds and also skills with other people. And even sometimes we want to help ourselves learn ideas, wise views, let's say that are not themselves particularly luscious. So I want to really highlight the fact that I wouldn't want to reduce sort of what I'm talking about to smell the roses, smell the flowers, mm -hmm. enjoy every sandwich. Yeah, smell the flowers, enjoy every sandwich. If you're eating it, enjoy it, duh, and help others and do the same. But that's a very, very small part of the ways in which we can help ourselves steepen our, our rate of healing, growing, and awakening as we move through our day. Join us for part two of this remarkable dialogue where we dive deeper into these and other intriguing topics. Today's episode was brought to you by iAwake Technologies. Visit the Deep Transformation website to find out more about iAwake's audio tools designed to wake us up, grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice. 
Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Deep Transformation Podcast, and we greatly appreciate your comments, suggestions, and questions. Thank you for all you are and all you do. From John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.